0: At the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas, you are listening to the Billator Christie podcast brought to you by BillatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, we want to bring you the Word of God from Romans chapter 8 verse 29, which states, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is the Word of God. Thanks to be to God.
1: Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking the truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christi Podcast. My name is Curtis Avalon I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, welcome, 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 everyone. Uh, praying for all of our listeners. Uh, and I've been thinking about how spring is here and and, uh, and how it's treating us here and wondering how it is for all of you out there, all the listener base. Fill us in with comments, questions. Reach out to Bellator Christi and... Let's, uh, let's welcome on the man behind the solo pi- pilot goggles since uh, you know he flew this bird last week on his own. so <laughs> Welcome aboard, Brian. It's good to have you
0: back. Let me say that.
1: <laughs> My goodness. All I could think of is Snoopy and the goggles and the scarf. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, making it run. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> yep. So we have an email reply.
0: Yeah, let me uh, pull this up right quick. Um, this t- this comes to us from our friend Jim Bain. Um, he says, Brian, thank you for answering my question. It definitely helped me out. I do just have one more question in regards to congruism, and remember, congruism is a form of Molinism. It's a uh, it's this is the version. Uh, brought out by Francisco Suarez he said you that you said there is effectual grace is that the same as effectual call that would accompany the general call I do believe that I have had that I have landed on the congruous model. thank you again for your time and ministry. I, I would say the effectual call is uh, by by some theologians is believed to be itself the gift of faith that God moves in our lives allowing us to have, that uh, that faith in our lives, so he gives us, in essence, the gift of faith. And so, Francisco Francisco Suarez said that while using middle knowledge, God uses eff- the effectual grace along with the general call. When there's this responsiveness that He gives over to those individuals, the the ability to believe. So He's He's a little more. Leaning towards the Thomistic, even Calvinist side to a degree, but he's still within the realm of Molinism. So, but he he says that there is this general call uh, to given to all people, but that the that the effectual call is given to those who respond to the gospel. So there is a, a concurrent mode of. um movement a movement by god working in and through the freedom of humanity it's not opposed it's all part of the same thing but but he would even go a step further to say that the gift of faith is itself a gift of god so i hope that helps
1: yeah so he's that's that's leaning more uh, more on the deterministic
0: uh, side right well to some degree I, and he he would not be deterministic um, but he would he, he is ironing out some wrinkles ironing out some wrinkles in the molinist model for those who don't like so for some people when we when you talk about libertarian free will in in any version, they would automatically say that uh, that makes the person the one who's giving faith, the one who is responsible for faith. Of course, we know that's not true because God is the prime mover. He has to move on the heart before a person even can respond. But Suarez, the way I understand him, he goes a little step further to say that as God is moving on our hearts, once that response is made, he gives over the gift of faith, the ability to believe, Overcoming any type of depravity in a person's heart, but he still holds to the freedom of the will. He's he's just given a little extra, a little extra boost to what God does in the process. Hmm. So just a little so distinction, question. just a little distinction between the congruous form of Molinism and regular Molinism. So, question
1: then: Would that then become irresistible? irresistible grace, or irresistible, uh, like in the Calvinistic um, view, where once God has de- has made it possible for us, it's irresistible? Is that what you're saying, or is that... Well,
0: I don't know that you would necessarily say that, and I probably need to look a little okay. bit more into what Suarez says on that. To, to really iron out those details in all fairness. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that he he more he more strongly emphasizes God's effectual call in in the act of salvation, more so necessarily than just than Melina does. But but he is adding that little caveat that God gives the gift of faith. So it in essence when God does give that effectual grace Then it could be seen to be Irresistible at that point But there has to be first This openness of the heart To to respond to that grace So there's still the freedom of the will But that, that will is moving Towards God after God First moves on it And then once it gets to a certain point God gives that effectual call That effectual grace to that individual To go ahead and solidify and seal the deal
1: Interesting. Does that represent all yeah. of
0: Molinism? No. This is this is more of a congruous model of Molinism, and and mm-hmm. Francisco Suarez is. It's interesting because he accepts a lot more of Thomistic thought, and and he merges Thomism and Molinism together more so than necessarily classic Molinism does. And so that mm-hmm. that's that's if if you're if you're really big in Thomism. But you still want to be a Molinist, you know. Congruism may be an attractive alternative. Um, It's still within that Molinist umbrella, but it may be a version that you like a little bit better because of some of those Mm -hmm. little tweaks that Suarez makes. And he's also open. My understanding is, from what I've read of him, he's also open to the simplicity of God, whereas you know guys like William Lane Craig and, and many Molinists are you know have take issue. With that, uh, right. with that issue, but uh, but he is right. more open to he's more open to those ideas. Right, just
1: sounds like we got to get Tim Stratton back on here.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? I've got his book ordered. I've got his book ordered, and <laughs> uh, in fact, I was talking to him in the Molinist because actually, the last last week's um, podcast went viral uh, for a while because you know we were talking in the Molinist uh, Facebook group, the community. Uh, we were talking through some of the things that Grudem had said, and um, and, and Stratton came on there, and he said, hey, man, have you read my book? I've covered some of these issues, and I said, you know what? I've got it in my queue. I got to thinking the other night, I thought, man, i got to get that book. So it's heading to Pilot Mountain, North Carolina now as we speak, nice. and I'm looking forward nice. to uh, diving in that. And, yes, I would love to get now Dr. Tim Stratton uh, on the show. Yeah. He's He's finalized his doctoral work, and so we can That's call good. him Dr. Tim Stratton.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, he was a riot when we had him on.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: (laughs) So, well, yeah, so that's good. So if that answered your question, um, we'll just uh, um, leave it at that. And if we need to, you can email Brian back and and keep kind of settling the dust on this one.
0: Yeah, if it's clear as mud, we'll try to unmuddy the water a little bit more.
1: Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... We're going to get on into um, a little bit more of that Molinist, uh, uh, Molinist and Molinism um, and, and what you did last week with, with the rebuttal to Wayne Grudem. Mm-hmm. We're going to go ahead and kind of talk about maybe and, and maybe poke at some of these uh, ideas and maybe stir up stir up the questions because um, last week I kind of was thinking about it as I listened to it. Um, there were some questions I had um, that that... Maybe weren't you know, uh, maybe weren't uh, what would normal mainstream questions would be in the in the run of that. Maybe just somebody just looking at it from the outside. Um, the other thing—that's the is, type of questions uh, we need. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing is—is is, you know when I was when I was listening to it, man, I tell you what. Wayne Grudem and the things that he talked about, and the things that you talked about—my word, there was some, there was some deep stuff in that <laughs> podcast that I really, I enjoyed listening to. But I was like, "Wow!" This, See, that's the danger when you at a let a different level.
0: That's that's the danger when you let me run loose by myself. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it was good though, man. I I enjoyed it. So well, let's get into it and get these questions going. So uh, let's look at the first one. Um, how can we understand the Molinist view in the most
0: layman of terms? Well, let me let me try to explain all three models in in, in simplified language. But first, to answer your question in in the most basic format, I, I think that we need to go back to to what Doctor Tim Stratton has said, and it's how calling mere Molinism or as um. Uh, Charles, I mean, was it uh, Doctor Ryrie would call uh, speaking of uh, when he was talking of uh, dispensationalism, the sine qua non, the most essential aspects of of that belief system. Well, I think we have a sine qua non uh, in regard to Molinism, and I think it comes down to three things. One, Molinists believe that God is completely sovereign; He's absolutely sovereign in all things; He's in control of all things. Mm-hmm. Two. Right. God has knowledge of all things, and three human beings have libertarian free will. Um, so there is a balance between the sovereignty of God and the freedom of the will that we have as human beings. So, on this right. most basic, elementary format, that that is what makes up and comprises mere Molinism. One, God is completely sovereign. Two, God has knowledge of all things, and three. Humanity has libertarian free will. The biggest thing that distinguishes, uh, the, the, the biggest deciphering factor between Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism has to do with the aspect of election and human freedom. The easiest way to understand Calvinism is that in, the, in this belief system, God determines everything, He fore determines everything, He determines who is saved and who is unsaved according to his free will, his decision, without any human involvement. So for John Calvin, he really highly elevates the sovereignty of God, and he really highly elevates the the omnipotence of God, the authority of God. Arminianism, however, emphasizes the grace of God. Arminianism is that the belief that God chooses whom he will save By the human reactions to the gospel, by peering into the future. So, in eternity past, God looks into the future. He sees that whenever I give this gospel call, so and so, this person X is going to receive, person Y is going to refuse. Though The the person X, I'm going to elect to save those people. Person Y, I'm going to elect not to save those people. So it's, it's by the human responsiveness. Um, in other words, this is simple foreknowledge. And it's different from middle knowledge. It's simple foreknowledge. In fact, Molinists hold, and um, as do Thomists, that God has this simple foreknowledge, which is called in Thomism, free knowledge. The knowledge of things to come. The knowledge of things that will happen. So in Arminianism, God makes his decision on whom he's going to save, on who, who he's going to save, simply by the future events that take place. So he makes that decision from eternity past by what's going to happen in the future. With Molinism, so if Calvinism emphasizes the power of God and Arminianism emphasizes the grace of God, Molinism emphasizes the knowledge of God. So with Molinism, God makes his decision to save by his complete knowledge of each person he creates. And so really this holds a biblical precedent if you think about it because Jesus tells us that God knows how many hairs are on her head. He knows the length of days we have. He knows everything about us. Jeremiah chapter 1, we see the same thing, that God knew Jeremiah before he was ever created, even in his mother's womb. and He knew everything about Jeremiah. So there is a biblical precedent to this. So, with Molinism, the decision is not based on what happens in the future, but it's God's complete knowledge of each person and knowing what each person would do given certain circumstances. So, with a person X, God knows that if certain things take place, that this person will receive the gospel, and whereas person Y, no matter what happens, or that person won't receive the gospel. Um... So, I think that is if in the most simplest of terms, what deciphers the three concepts,
1: hmm. yeah, so when we were when I was maybe we'll get into that again in another <laughs> question. I'm not sure, but when I was trying to think of how to explain it, um i used a I used an analogy when I text you. Um, when I was when I was talking to you, and I don't know, do we talk about that in the next in the next some of the other questions, or or do we want to talk about that now?
0: No, go ahead, go for it. So
1: so when I was trying to explain Molinism to somebody, which I feel that it falls sh- tremendously short in all sorts of ways, but it, it's kind of an easier way for me to explain it and and correct me if i'm wrong in this but i explain it as you go into work and there's a football game going to be on so you record that football game but while you're at work or while you're coming home the football game is already done and played you know the winner's already been chosen so on and so forth but as you As you're coming home, your friend calls or I call you and say, hey, did you hear the score? So-and-so won. You would say, man, I didn't want to hear that. (laughs) I wanted to watch the game for myself, you know, all the way through. But now you've got knowledge of the end, right? The end score. But the players on the field had free will while they were playing the game. You have knowledge of the end result of who's going to win. Potentially, even who's going to be injured? Who knows? And so you 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 know the you know the whole story from the beginning to the end, and the players on the field still had free will to play the game uh, from start to finish, and were able to make the errors, the successes, those kind of things throughout there. Is
0: that a close yeah. representation, or is it? I, I think it's close. I think a lot of it, though, because and, and, I even kind of used that, il- that illustration myself last week, and we got to texting one another, and the more I got to thinking about it, and the more I thought, you know, that might be talking more about simple foreknowledge, um, because, because we would know the final result, but but then the people would still have the freedom to do that. So, But I still think within that model, you, if you can show that you that you know when the ball is, say, it's thrown in a particular area, and as football fans, sometimes we can even see this happening before it even happens. We see that the quarterback is going to throw the ball when he's rushed. He's aiming in a certain direction, and we know that if that, that defense, or that quarterback is in the right place, that he's going to reach up and catch the ball. Because we can kind of read the circumstances and and partially know what football players would do, so but the middle knowledge is more the aspect of knowing each person and knowing how they're going to respond to a certain circumstance, you know. But I, so I think that the I think that the illustration works. But I, you know, the more I got to think, I've kind of used this illustration as well. You know, we live in a very politically toxic environment. So so okay. say you have. You have a very outspoken conservative grandfather. But say you have a loved one who goes out and marries someone who is very liberally liberal in their mindset. And you know when they come together at Christmas time, you you, you try to keep the conversation on neutral ground. But then the spouse or the boyfriend/girlfriend, whatever the case may be, says something off color, off-key that really you know how the grandpas are going to respond to that. And you, <laughs> you automatically, you get red in the face, you start sweating, thinking, oh, my Lord, World War III <laughs> is just about to commence. <laughs> so the reason we have that knowledge, the reason we have that response is because we have, to a limited degree, the understanding of how a certain person is going to respond because we know them so well. And so with middle knowledge, it's kind of in that area too So that God has so much knowledge not only of past, present, and future, but he has so much knowledge of each one of us that he knows that if this person is placed in this circumstance, this person will respond in such a way. I think the football illustration works too because you, know, you could say that we know how certain players would react in certain circumstances, uh, but you know, you, there's there's kind of a blind you know, and i and you know, I think sometimes i've I've gotten the two confused as well about you know simple foreknowledge is compo- as compared to compared to mental knowledge, but I do think the illustration works,
1: yeah, interesting, yeah 'cause that's a, it's it's tough to explain that to somebody um that doesn't quite understand the other two. Aspects, right? Um, you know, so that makes it difficult. So,
0: so just remember, uh, with Calvinism, the decision is completely and exclusively up to God, with no human in, human human involvement. Mol- with Arminianism, God sees the human reactions as taking in the in the future and applies that to the election in the past. But with Molinism, the the end result is election comes by the complete knowledge of God of each person and the choices that they would make when placed in certain circumstances. And then furthermore, it would be said that God placed the most people in the best circumstances so that the most people could be saved.
1: Okay, so since you brought that up, I'm going to step just a little bit to the side of this. Calvinist, uh, five-point Calvinist, um, hard on that. Um, Salvation. You're sealed. You can never
0: be lost. Well, it, dep- Arminian, it, it Now, that depends. Go, go ahead. Go, go ahead and, and finish Ar- Ar-
1: Armenian. Arminian is you can lose your salvation. So, if you go to the
0: extremes of those
1: two ends, is that what you see?
0: It, it depends because it's okay. sometimes it's, it's very hard to, to be open and shut because, for instance, with with Calvin and the way, like even guys like John Bunyan who were Calvinists, the way they viewed perseverance of the saints is that you could never really know if you were the elect or not, because they believed that you could apostatize. And for some of these guys, they were concerned so much when they messed up. I mean, it almost made them neurotic. Especially John Bunyan, uh, he, he became so neurotic, worrying that he wasn't one of the elect because he goofed up on something. And so the whole aspect of perseverance of the saints in that regard is that only the elect will be saved. And and for some, even some primitive Baptists hold this viewpoint, you can never really know if you are saved, if you're one of the elect or not. So you never have any assurance in that regard. Now, with, with Calvinistic Baptists and many Calvinistic Presbyterians, it would be more like the OSAS, once saved, always saved perspective. Arminianism—it really depends. Now, with Armenian Baptists, they may still hold to the OSAS, once saved, always saved, um, because they would say it'd be the work of God working in, and if you were really, if you're saved, then you'd never want to give it up, in, in their opinion. But then you have other Armenians, Wesleyans, who are. Um, open to the possibility that you know a person may come to the point in their life that they say not by any sin that they do but they may openly say you know I no longer want to be a christian and and so god will give them the freedom to depart from the covenant in that regard with molinism it is uh, you know we have to understand with molinism that it really comes from a uh, molina was a catholic he was a reformer though interestingly he was very sympathetic to the Reformation and wanted to see the Reformation happen, but from the inside of the church out, and so. Um, but now his is entrenched more into a uh, um, Catholic type of viewpoint. So really, with these three perspectives, you you may have, oddly enough, some Calvinists who say that you can't really know that you're saved, and you may have some Arminians in uh, you know uh, who say. That once you're saved, you're sealed with the salvation. So it's, it's really difficult. Now, Arminius was open to the possibility that a person could lose their salvation. But uh, from my readings of him, which I didn't know this until we really st- I studied for this podcast, uh, most of his works were uh, published posthumously after he passed away. So um, he left the door open really? on some of these issues. Yeah, I didn't know that until really looking oh. into this week's material.
1: Wow, that's interesting Because, i mean it, it, you hear i know in our our belief um that you can't lose your salvation, but you can relinquish your salvation so to speak
0: yeah um, and that's and that's more know, of the so Wesleyan viewpoint wesleyan armenian slash remonstrant remonstrant right. is the official term term for Armenian. in in Europe, the remonstrant. So that is the position. Now, interestingly, Arminius and Wesley differs in what happens after that apostasy occurs. For for Arminius, he said, if it's possible for a person to lose their salvation, they can never regain it because they would then essentially have to re-crucify Jesus on the cross to do that. Whereas Wesley says... It's very possible that God would bring you back in the fold if if it's possible for a person to lose their salvation in that aspect, which it wouldn't be losing it. It would it'd be more like what you said, relinquishing it in the Wesleyan perspective. Right. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, that kind of clears some stuff up, so that's good. It kind of gets sidetracked with some other <laughs> statements. So, <laughs> so now, hey, number two... Can a person lean to the Calvinist side or the Arminian side in the Molinist
0: perspective? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Interestingly, uh, William Lane Craig, while a Molinist, says that he leans towards the Wesleyan perspective on issues. Gary Habermas, one of my professors at Liberty, uh, he asked, we were talking about the differences. In soteriology and, and he and he leans more In the Armenian Baptist perspective um, But I was talking about I was told that That I was That I identify more With the Molinist camp And he said I'm going to tell you something That's going to blow your mind I hope you don't mind me sharing this But he said I, I'm going to tell you something He said it before the whole class So I'm assuming It's yes. okay <laughs> He said I'm going to tell you something That's going to blow your mind I said Really what's that He said There's a guy Who is reformed but who also identifies as a Molinist. I said, really, who? He said the philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Hmm. (laughs) He's in the Reformed camp, but he identifies as a Molinist. He accepts the middle ground position. So there you have two different philosophers, William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga, They're both in the Molinist camp, but one leans towards the more Reformed view in Alvin Plantinga, one leans more towards the Wesleyan view, and they're all Molinist in that perspective. So there is some wiggle room in this Molinist perspective to lean one way or the other. But you're still going to have that sine qua the the essentials of Molinism.
1: Yeah, Yeah, the essentials. And... Just to just to be clear, none of this is outside of, um, you could say, a, a true you know, or Orthodox Christianity.
0: Correct? Oh, sure, absolutely. Now, you know, the Calvinist. I, I believe that they. You know, when we talk about Orthodox Christianity, I mean, th- this issue is really an in-house debate. Uh yeah, now, okay, I do. That's I, what I was
1: getting at. Yeah,
0: it's really an in-house debate because. I think everything from Calvinism to Wesleyanism are in the whole confines of of Orthodox Christianity now when you get to more of a deterministic viewpoint there, there comes a point in time where you lose the responsibility of of uh, humanity which can come to the point that you start blaming God for everything that happens even your own Let's be honest. Even a person's own stupidity, they'll blame that on God. That yeah. get, I wouldn't call that a heresy, but it becomes a little heterodox in its application. And I would say the same thing with open theism. I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a heresy, but I would say that it's it's little. It's on the fringe of of the uh, umbrella. It's it would be a little more of a heterodox type of viewpoint. But uh, okay. But I would say, as far as a you know the 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 primary teachings of of Christianity, Calvinism, um, Calvinism, Thomism, Augustinianism, uh, uh, Molinism, Wesleyanism, Armenianism, all of them are under the umbrella of Christianity.
1: Okay, good, because that's that that was that clears that up. That's what I was wanting to do is is make sure that the people, the listeners, are understanding that this is this is this. This is an in-house debate, and there is room to either side of this. Oh,
0: so. well, sure. Um, but but no, so the one thing we do it, have to understand is that there are consequences for holding too, in ex- a, a too extreme of a view which can lead to doubts and concerns yeah. that aren't necessary. Um, but I will say that, theologically right. speaking.
1: Well, I can see where... Okay, so you lean far one one direction. So let's just use the Calvinist view. You lean too far in that view, then it takes any responsibility out of the person, and they can just live and do whatever they want to do. They pray to the prayer, they go living off in, and and living life, you know. And and because they've been they prayed the prayer, and they're they're within that camp, and um, so on, and so forth. And then on the other side, I could see where the person could lean too far outside of that bounds to where then God really is irrelevant and they then become God. Oh, absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, yeah, so I could see that. Yeah, I could see that being, being what that is. So, number three, in your rebuttal, uh, you gave credit to Grudem as being top-notch theologian. What other views
0: uh, did he parse out in his books? Oh gosh, he parses out a bunch of things. I mean, let me just pull this up um, on Malagas here. He he uh, he he talks about the existence of God. I think he even goes into some apologetics very lightly. Talks about the character of God, uh, creation, uh, and even in the creation aspect. Here's the crazy thing about it: he talks about concurrence. God operating in creation alongside human freedom, alongside these other things. Uh. So he talks about the decrees of God, and i got to give him his due. When it comes down to the attributes of God, I think he does a fantastic job describing the attributes of God. Uh, I mean, many Bible colleges and seminaries use Wayne Grudem's systematic theology as, as a standard textbook. Right. And that, for me, is is even more concerning when he comes across pro- projecting Molinism in the way that he does, because I don't think he's very fair to the data. Quite honestly, I mean, everybody has an opinion, and you know, and he's entitled to his to, a, to his opinion. But the problem is that some of the the way that he shapes middle knowledge and Molinism, Molinism in general, isn't very true to what Molina and most Molinists hold. And I think that there's some there's some problems with anachronism, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, and there's some other additional problems which I mentioned on the last podcast um, that really are very concerning when, when you take a look at his viewpoint. Sure, but yeah. by and large, sure. uh, yeah, most, and I, I most know of that... the rest of it is really good. I'm sorry to interrupt you there.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's good. Yeah, I, I just know that there's many people that that. Uh, um, have read Grudem's systematic theology and they are, you know, they're, they're one completely impressed at how, how easy it is to, to grasp those concepts that he was talking about in there. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. And so, um, it's, I don't know, you know, I heard a pastor one time say, you know, he, he, uh, he became a, uh, a believer and, uh, Went to his went to his pastor just after he became a believer. He went to his pastor and and uh, and uh, had had gone to the Christian bookstore and picked up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and walked into his pastor's office with his Bible and the Systematic Theology, and he's like, um, you know how how do I how do I read this so I understand you know this this book? And uh, <laughs> I guess the pastor said let me see that book and he hands him wayne grudem's book right and uh, he takes and he throws it throws it behind him and he says now read that other book through <laughs> when you when you read it from cover to cover then you can read this other book well then he he come back to him after he read it from cover to cover and he says read it again <laughs> so, so you know that's it just kind of cracks me up how we how we as humans just look for somebody else to explain some of this stuff when really, you know, God has has explained some of that. It's just kind of unique. Yeah, but of, but now, let know, me let me,
0: let me say on the other hand though that the, the part of the problem is is that, you know, when we talk about systematic theologies, we're talking about the major themes in scripture. So so theology right. books are important because what they do yeah. is a good theology book is going to Really get into the scripture and show how the scripture, together as a whole, brings forth right. some of this information. So, you know, the, the reality is is when we talk about certain things, the, things theologically, one passage of scripture may not answer it. But looking at the collaborative work of scripture together, the whole overall, the yeah. whole overall thing is is what gives us the picture. And quite honestly. You know, not everyone's called to be a scholar, so I do think that there is that there is a strong reason for us to read systematic theology books, but make sure that systematic theology book is rooted and grounded in the teachings of Scripture. So yeah. I would say read both, but have the Scripture, the higher viewpoint, and then the systematic theology underneath it. So. Right. Uh, I mean that's that's part of the problem. I think I think we do have, theologically speaking, is that sometimes it seems as if we put our theologians over Christ, <laughs> and that, yeah. that begins to be a problem.
1: Right, and I know that um, that that this particular pastor just kind of made a made a comment. He's like, "Well, now I'm old enough, and I've been through the Scripture enough. Now I picked up the Wayne Cruden book and found <laughs> out how close I was already thinking in those right ways, but it helps him." Uh, You know, helps him be able to explain that. That's his biggest thing. Is it helps him be able to explain, um, you know, the, the the
0: the theology questions to people. Well, and that's what systematic theology is all about. I mean, it starts in biblical good systematic theology starts in biblical theology. It starts with what the Bible says. Then it works into the historical aspect and then the systematic aspect. But yeah, I think that systematic theology is incredibly important because quite honestly, most of what we do on the podcast is is systematic theology as we're talking sure. about, you know, these large themes coming together. But But the important thing is is to ensure that we are that whatever our theological system is, that it that it's coherent, that it's um, that it's that it's strongly built upon the foundation of the Word of God, and from that build a theological system uh, from there.
1: Yeah, that's good. So, number four, did Calvin know of the Molinist view? He, he, and why did his view go su- go to such rigid uh, rigid
0: views so, so, so I, I'm going to hear. Here, let me just give you some dates here because because I goofed up last week, uh, and I appreciate some of the folks on the Molinist group that uh, that called me out on this. And I said I said to people when preaching, I say it here on the podcast. If if we get something wrong, we'll come back on here and, and clarify and correct anything we say wrong. And last week I said that uh, Arminius came 150 years after Molina. Well, that's not true. So here's the time frame. Calvin was born in 1509 in Noyon, France. Now I'm going to probably mask some of the name of these some of these cities' names, so just glad I'm not reading it then. <laughs> so Noyon, France, uh, I'm sure sure there's a little oi or something like that to it that I'm not saying right, but uh, 1509 <laughs> was when he was born in Noyon, France. He died in 1564 in Geneva, Switzerland. Okay? Now the Institutes that was Calvin's big work it was written in 1536 and then later was revised in 1541. So again the Institutes were written in 1536 and later revised in 1541. Wait a minute. He was he was born in when? He was born in 1509 and died in 1564.
1: So he was 27 years old when he wrote his first book
0: apparently so <laughs> Jeez. wow he and, and was kind of bright calvin is an interesting guy and i kind of really can really identify with calvin in some aspects not necessarily his soteriology, but he is one who wanted to be a scholar. He wanted to teach. He wanted to study. He wanted to be in the books. He really didn't care about being out in public. He really didn't care about being in in the masses. He really didn't even care about pastoring. He wanted to be in the books. He wanted to be in the word. He wanted to be teaching. He wanted to be studying. That. I can kind of identify with that. <laughs> I think that would be yeah. pretty cool, but uh that was Calvin's main emphasis all the way but also also uh Calvin was one a very sickly man. he had a lot of digestive problems in his life and and he was uh sometimes very frail and thin, uh not exactly sure what happened what caused that, but uh he was kind of a sickly fellow but a but a brilliant man, even if you don't agree with this soteriological system, he was a brilliant man. Yeah. Um, And by the way, I'm with Norman Geisler. I don't think that Calvin's writings necessarily always uh, matches what some Calvinists proclaim. Now, I'm not saying they're way off, but I don't know that you necessarily could get Tulip from his writings. That came later on in the Synod of Dort in, what, 1618, I believe it was. Okay, so Molina is our next guy. Molina was born in 1535 Now, here is one of those towns, Cuenca, Spain, C-U-E-N-C-A. I don't know how you say that. Someone who's good in Spanish, maybe you can correct us on that. C-U-E-N-C-A, Cuenca, Spain, I don't know. Anyhow, he dies in 1600 in Madrid, Spain. I can say Madrid, so 1600 in Madrid, Spain. The Concordia was written in 1588. So Calvin could not have known about Molinism because the Concordia was written um, over 20 years after Calvin's death. So the Concordia came out in 1588. Now, Arminius, he was born in 1560 in Oudwater, Netherlands, uh, and he died in 1609 in Leiden, Netherlands. So he was a Dutch guy. Uh, so 1560, Udwater, Netherlands, uh, died in 1609, Leiden, Netherlands. Now, from what I understand, and if I'm wrong, someone correct me on this, but from what I have researched, his, his work, The Remonstrants, now he was a teacher, he was a professor, but his book Remonstrants, these are some of his writings that he had written, they were collected and published posthumously in 1610. Now, someone in the Molinus group, and I can't verify if this is true or not because they didn't give a resource. Someone said that it's possible that Arminius had a copy of the Concordia, Concordia in his personal library. So here again, while Arminius is more of a contemporary of Molina, it's anachronistic to say that Molina was influenced by Arminius when. Concordia, the Concordia came out far earlier than the Remonstrance did. Now, by the way, some may ask, why didn't Arminius publish and write more than he did? Well, come to find out, this little piece of trivia: he had twelve children. He didn't have time That's to write. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So,
0: the, therefore, yeah. we can say with great certainty that Calvin did not know of Molinism uh, because the Concordia was published over twenty years after his death. Mm. It, isn't this amazing in
1: that time period you got a, sh- a small window of a short window of time where a large group of people or I shouldn't say large group but a group of people uh, really had specific thoughts about certain dynamics of God things of God it really sh- certainly kind of brings to my my view my thought of a a a a blast of of knowledge to to certain time periods god allows people to have these certain bits of knowledge to 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 help grow and to help conversations and help write books etc etc to help expand our knowledge of god
0: absolutely and you know, you know, Thomas Aquinas wrote in. when uh, was he in the eleven? The, let me see the date on um, on uh, Thomas Aquinas. I think he was a thousand. Um, let me look him up just to be on the safe side. Uh, oh yeah, 1255. twelve fifty five. Twelve. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Born twelve twenty five in Roccasica, <laughs> Probably <laughs> that's a good bet. Italian word in Italy. Twelve twenty five Italy, and he died in twelve seventy four in uh, Fasanova Abbey, that's a little bit Fasano, that's a little bit easier to say, Fasanova Abbey, Italy, so 1225-1274, and he wrote some 15,000 pages, the Summa Theologica was some 15,000 pages, and it was not completed. That's one of the things that Suarez was trying to do, is to add on to uh, the Summa and blend that with Molinism.
1: Hmm. See and look at how look at how young these men were. Yeah, and young. I mean, I, in 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 just retrospect of, of of age of you know of me and you and and those around
0: those guys were young. Yeah, I they mean, were thinking of these things. So so God willing, if I get through the dissertation and I'm able to walk next spring. I'll be 44 years old by the time I get my PhD. Some of these guys were in their 20s whenever they had it. I'm thinking, my Lord. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. It, it's so, are they intellectually gifted by God at that moment to, to be able to think of these things and process these things and be able to promote and, and, and uh, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's, I don't know. It, to me, it's, it, it is truly amazing when you look at certain epochs of time that have gone on and certain things theologically or biblically or um, even in our ability to technologically Um, move along. There's certain times where God seems like he reveals more, allows more to be revealed for us to be able to understand him better. Absolutely. Yeah. Crazy stuff. So, the next one, then, I guess, then, did Arminius know of Molina's view? It appears that he, it, that.
0: yeah, and just just very simple to answer this, I think he pr- was probably at least aware of Molina. Some people argue that he may have had a copy of the Concordia. Whether he did or not, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I haven't seen any research to verify that, but um, that m- it may have been Molina's work that kind of led to the spark that got him to question uh, some of Calvin's views, and to to maybe bring forth the Reformation in the Reformed view itself. Hmm.
1: Interesting. So this this is probably my biggest question here in this one, and and I and I don't mean this by any disrespect to anybody's view in this. Oh but, yeah, you do.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but but it's it, it, here, but and it, this is just something that I just I. I question a lot of stuff based upon when I read scripture, I don't see it, right? So if we were to read scripture for the first time without any presuppositions, what would we potentially find in scripture?
0: Well, I think that the problem is is that we, we can never read the scripture without any presuppositions because we're all going to be, I mean, we hate to admit this, but we're all influenced by something. And mm-hmm. sometimes we're influenced by our experiences. You know, we may have yeah. something that happened to us early on, and uh, that may have impacted the way we we view certain things, and we'll have a little slant, you know, coming to that. Uh, but now, the, the part of the problem is too living in twenty twenty one. We have about two thousand years of biblical interpretation which has influenced, <laughs> influenced the way we view the Scripture. But and it is interesting, though. If you go back and look at the earliest uh, patristic fathers, uh, the earliest church writers, second, third generation, it's intriguing to see how they interpreted Scripture. So, for instance, Justin Martyr, um, he says in the second Apology, Neither do we affirm that it is by fate that men do what they do or suffer what they suffer, but that each man by free choice acts rightly or sins, and that it is by the influence of the wicked demons that earnest men, such as uh, Socrates and the like, suffer persecution and are in bonds, while uh, Sardanapalus, Epicurus, and the like seem to be blessed in abundance and glory. So he's even talking about some of the philosophers. By the way, Justin Martyr is going to say that the best philosophy is the Christian philosophy. So he's actually using the Scripture, his understanding of Scripture, to show against some of the philosophers of his day to bring forth uh, this, this mindset. Uh, there was something else. Let me see if I can pull it up. But even if I can't, the, the main point is... Um, let me see if I can pull this up. I had another one. Okay, so here again, Dialogue with Trifo, 102. Since God knew that it would be good, he created both angels and men free to do what that which is righteous, and he appointed periods of time during which he knew it would be good for them to have an exercise of free will. So that's kind of like a Molinist perspective to a degree. Not, you know, not with all the intrinsic things that we've been discussing, but there is that aspect right. of knowing what people would do. The, the point is, I'm trying to make, is that the earliest patristic writers had a far more of a balance as they looked at Scripture between the sovereignty of God and the human freedom of individuals. Up until the earliest writings, even even Augustine, early before the whole issue with Pelagius came about, he also held in balance the the um, sovereignty of God and human freedom. He held right. those two things in balance. Now, it's human nature, though, Curtis, that when we come across something, a controversy, we often take things in the nth degree. We, we take things to its far extreme. And I'm not necessarily saying that later um, Augustine necessarily did this in all things, but he seemed as highly more highly emphasized the sovereignty of God and lessened the freedom of man, and when I say man, I'm talking about all humanity, when after the time that he had the debate with Pelagius, so it's almost like he had a chip right. on his shoulder, and so he was almost afraid, it seemed like, to even say anything about human freedom after all the, the battles he had been through with Pelagius. So I think right. that altered the way he viewed Scripture after that. And I'm not saying that he was a bad theologian after the controversy with Pelagius. I'm just saying I think that it altered the way he he emphasized more the sovereignty and less of the the freedom of humanity.
1: Okay. So then... (laughs) So then... In that... I mean, human nature shows, or lets us, um, I guess... Human nature: We naturally want to uh, lean on one side or the other when we have some sort of experience. How can we get back to reading the scripture? I guess I really kind of. How can we get back to reading the scripture without having, um, without having a rigid view? So we allow ourselves the ability that we allow ourselves the ability to think. Um, one side or the other, and and be willing to accept that. Well, I could see it this way, or I could see it this way.
0: You know, become a Thomist or Molinist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I say that I say that in jest. you am saying though, <laughs> I'm say that in jest. But but in all honesty, I, I think that th- these two middle views aren't as rigid because Thomas Aquinas he doesn't really necessarily. I he he doesn't necessarily lay out this rigid five point view of uh, a tulip uh, or, or or something like that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, do, what? How can we do this without having some sort of um, so we can look at these things um, with with a little bit more of an open perspective?
0: Just to let our listeners know, in case there is a little bit of a skip. We we had uh, some type of technical glitch to go on in the, with the computer. So if there's if there's a little lack of continuity, <laughs> understand that's what happened. Uh, the, the whole screen went blank. My computer's trying to do a restart. That's part of the problem. It's up, uploaded something and it's trying to do a restart. So if you hear a lag, so I'm sorry, Curtis. What was the question one more time? Well, I was I was just
1: wondering what how can we look at. How can we read the scripture without, um, you know, being so rigid on one side or the other and allow ourselves to be able to um, see the other perspective and not be so ready to uh, jump on the heretic bandwagon?
0: Yeah, yeah I, so I to think- speak. I, I I think we know, and I don't know if if this was picked up before a glitch or not, but I jokingly said to become a tom Mister Molinist, uh, because the fact that uh, Thomas Aquinas and Molina, they're not they don't have this rigid five point acronym. I mean, you can make an acronym, and, and roses would be the acronym for. Um, for Molinism, and I don't know that you really could for Thomism. I mean, maybe you could. I don't know. But um, but but Aquinas seems to be far more open to this issue and, and creates a balance. So there's not really this rigid form of looking at things. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that uh, right. uh, Aquinas uh, holds. He had a strong Mariology that... I not being a Catholic wouldn't wouldn't hold, um, right? So, so reading the scripture, I think that um, so to go back to answer your question, I think that um, this is part of what we need to do in systematic theology is to allow the Bible to speak, understand the historical context behind the scripture and as we've okay. mentioned before, to let the Scripture speak for itself. But as we're making these assessments, and, and all of us are theologians, we all need to do this to see the big picture, because if we didn't, all we would know was just minute portions of the Scripture, and we wouldn't see the big picture. But what we need to do is, is to allow the, the Scripture to naturally flow as best as we can, and as we interpret it, try to keep in, in touch with what the text say, it says when we make these theological assessments. And there again, that's why biblical theology needs to really direct and steer a person's systematic theology. Okay.
1: Yeah, because that's, that's where I was, that's where, I guess that's where I was trying to go with that question is, I guess you just answered it. What, what do we let drive our thoughts? Yeah, You know, what should we let drive our thoughts? And obviously it's scripture, which we've always kind of talked about is, you know, um, making sure we have that in the highest view over the top of, of anything.
0: So, oh, sure. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So how is the topic of hell and damnation, like we talked about a while back in uh, um, one of our podcasts, we, we went over that. Um <laughs> How was that explained in the Molinist view?
0: You know, I honestly think that it would be in the traditional sense. I don't see any reason why. Uh, I mean, you have people from from all different walks in Baptist life and and, in all kinds of different walks that uh, that view things in different ways. Uh, I mean, you have some Baptists who I dare say the majority of Baptists, the majority of uh, of Assemblies of God Would hold the traditional view Of heaven and hell right. um, but, yep. but you may have some outsiders Who might hold to annihilationism Or something like that uh, I don't think that would be the majority But you know you may have some outskirt um, Cases of, of that I was looking in in the uh, my, my edition of the fourth Part of the Concordia To see if he speaks of anything Specifically on hell And I didn't see anything in there but um, but yeah, I would say that uh, the Molinist perspective would be the same as the Thomist perspective and any other perspective, that there's this classical view of heaven and hell. Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, and so what's interesting, what I'm seeing coming out of this is as we're starting to walk through this a little bit more and more from last week's podcast to this week's podcast is not necessarily a blend but an honest look at who we are and who God is and allowing us the, the ability to still choose but allowing God to still be sovereign throughout. Mm-hmm. I totally have a view of God's sovereignty, mm-hmm. 100%. But I know that there have been times where I've witnessed people that just are searching for God, Mm -hmm. searching deeply for God, Um, and so I I really appreciate the Molinist view in this.
0: Yeah, as you're going to say, it sounds like you're a Molinist. Uh,
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm just saying, I've I've witnessed it. So. Number eight, can we build a strong case for Molinism?
0: Yeah, and I and I won't really go in too far in depth in this because this is kind of what we did on the last podcast. But I, I want right. to go back and look at the four proofs that, uh, and without going in too deep because we've just reached our hour mark here, and, and with the computer going way it is, don't want to yeah. don't want to go too too crazy on this. But uh, just yep. kind of give the basic proofs and kind of go back and give some commentary on this. So, in review, the first proof. Uh, is Molina, this is coming from Molina. Molina says, It is clear from sacred scripture that the supreme God has certain cognition or knowledge of some future contingents. Now, contingents means those things, um, the the contingent events uh, dependent on other things. The future contingents that depend on human free choice. So, it's based upon necessary on human free choice, but that neither have existed nor ever will exist exi- will exist in reality, and that hence do not exist in eternity either. Therefore, it is not simply because future contingents exist outside their causes in eternity that God knows them with certain certainty. So here he's talking about counter counterfactuals. Factuals are things that happen. Counterfactuals are things that could have happened but didn't. So, for instance, he uses two passages of scripture to verify this claim. Matthew eleven twenty one, where Jesus said, If the wonders that had been worked among you had been worked in Tyre and Sidon, they would have long ago have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So he's saying that if the people in Tyre and Sidon had seen what the people in Israel saw then, that they would have repented. They would have, but they didn't because the timing wasn't right for the Messiah's appearance.
1: Right.
0: First Kings 23, 10-11, he says, David consulted the Lord about whether Saul was going to descend upon Keilah, and the Lord responded, He will descend. He consulted again about whether the men of Keilah, who had received nothing but kindness from David, were going to hand, hand him and the men over with him into the hands of Saul and the Lord said that they will hand you over. Well, mm-hmm. the text goes that they didn't go because they knew what would have happened if they did go there. So here we have two two uh, instances in Scripture that seem to verify this counterfactual knowledge of God.
1: Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that the last podcast um, went deep into some of this stuff, so you know it would be good to... Um, link these two together i oh, sure it, so people
0: could hear it so so and then the seven, the second proof that was the first one the second proof says that through his natural knowledge God comprehends himself now now get this he comprehends himself and in himself this doesn't come from outside of God in himself he comprehends all the things that exist imminently in himself and thus the free choice of any creature, Whom he is able to make through his omnipotence. Mm -hmm. So the knowledge of future things, the knowledge of free will, doesn't come from necessarily human beings, but God's complete knowledge of all things. The third proof. Mm -hmm. God does not get his knowledge from things, but knows all things in himself and from himself. Therefore, the existence of things, whether in time or eternity, Contributes nothing to God's knowledge with certainty What is going to be or not going to be So again, all this knowledge comes from within God And then finally the fourth proof In God there is providence and predestination With regard to future contingents Therefore there is a precognition By which he foreknows with certainty Before anything exists What is or is not going to be on the hypothesis and condition that he should grant this or that assistance or means or arrange things in this way or some other way. So, again, God foreknows, God not only foreknows, but he knows in himself and through himself everything that is or could be or even the decisions that would be in given certain circumstances. Yeah. So this is this yes. is the highest view of God's knowledge that could ever be presented.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it, I guess to me this totally makes sense. It just completely um, makes makes sense, and it, I, it to me it it brings it more of in awe. If God knows uh, knows this and knows this about us, but still still allows us to choose. Yeah. Um you know, it's it's an amazing thing when we grip
0: that. So. And by the way also, I think there's a, there's a wonderful point to be made that we need to really listen to the Lord because if he's telling us to do something and we don't do it, then he's he may be keeping us right. from something that could happen. And so there may be in God's knowledge of factuals and counterfactuals if we didn't go this way, this is this is what would happen or if we do go this way this is what would happen so there's even even in the christian walk there's freedom to listen to god's advice or not yeah. but still god knows the choices we're going to make and how to even correct those problems later yeah. on for us yeah
1: yeah see the, 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 there again it's it's that it's that uh building that i'm seeing in my in my own thought here of of God's knowledge, our free will, and how and how this is really working out in and as we chew through this. So, mm. um, so what kind of errors or shortcomings can we see in both Calvinist and Arminius view?
0: Calvin's errors, I, you know. I think Calvin has, with Calvinism, especially the hardcore. Because now, understand, we won't. We don't have time to get into this. There are even three right. viewpoints within Calvinism: superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism and sublapsarianism. That's a whole other podcast we can do. Um, yeah. Sublapsarianism is very close akin to the Molinist perspective, and even could even work in an Armenian perspective to a degree. But um, in some more uh, sovereign-based views of Arminianism. Anyhow, the problem with Calvin is that when it comes to moral apologetics, it's you have a harder time with it in Calvinism. Because if God is in control, uh, if he directs everything that happens and doesn't give some credence to, to human freedom in some regard, then that makes God the author of sin. And we we see even the scripture. I believe it's the book of James that tells us, "Don't say when you're tempted, you're tempted of God, because God's not going to tempt us." John tells us that God is light, and in Him there's no darkness, meaning that He's the absolute good. So the problem with Calvin is that it doesn't place any, it doesn't place a high view of human responsibility, and uh, and then it can lead to the viewpoint that God is the author of sin and God is the author of evil if you're not careful. Um, Arminius' error is that that his view of divine knowledge is only seen in the aspect of space and time. So in other words, God looks in the future, sees what you're going to do, and he makes his decision off what you're going to do. Well, that, that could possibly be the case, but with a Molinist perspective, That information is not coming from what's going to happen. That information was already known within God, in in himself and through himself, uh, despite what he sees in the future. Now, can he look in the future and make that decision? Of course, uh, because in Molinism there's room for simple foreknowledge, but with middle knowledge, God knew from eternity past what a person's going to do because of his infinite knowledge. So those are just, and there's some others we could talk about, but... Just to keep it brief, that that's the, that's that's the biggest problem.
1: That's good because that, that allows us to see those back to back. I like that. So, how does understanding the Molinist view help
0: us minister to people then? You know, that's a very good question. I think it provides us a comfortable balance in accepting both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I was speaking to someone who was going through a difficult time not long ago, And the person, you know, a person had mentioned that you know God has a plan for your life, and and the person says, well, if God has a plan for my life, don't we have the ability to do anything? And I thought to myself, oh yeah, in the Molinist perspective, they both work in harmony. You know, there is that aspect where they both work in harmony, and so um, I think that is the strength of this this Molinist perspective that it blends the two together. We can know in Molinism that. God knows in God's wisdom that he knows the right paths we should take. But also, if we mess up, if we fumble the ball, that's not the end of the story. Because God knows working through all this stuff. He knew that we were going to choose to do that to begin with. And provides the doors for our lives to put us and place us where we need to be. So God's knowledge is continuously working. And he knows all things with certainty. But even if we mess up, even if we just really—this isn't a pastoral term—but I'm going to use anyway. If we screw things up really bad, right? God can still fix it, and He has a place for us. And I think we can right. find that in the Molinist perspective.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, this is great. <laughs> this is great. Well, this this has been a good one, and we i i kind of figured we'd go out a little ways on this one, so not as bad Thanks as I I was afraid
0: we were going to, okay. but it still turned out a little longer. <laughs>
1: right yeah so thanks folks for, for hanging out with us and, and coming here so we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast and until next I'm Brian and I say
0: soldier on, on friends, friends. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts, and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristy.com now and submit your question.